Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. We're philosophical about dumb shit. We're philosophical about shit. We're very thoughtful about shit that means nothing. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, it's our 250th episode. Why can't we get our shit together ever and actually do something like to mark the occasion? <laughs> you know, because then there's just too many occasions to mark. And like, there's no way we could come up with something that interesting or cool. We could barely come up with something interesting or cool <laughs> just for, for like non-round number ups. Okay. But for the 75th episode, not like, woo, 75, like that's yeah. such a big number, right? We had like six guests come on and we had this whole thing like, what did you change your mind about? 100th, yep. we had our daughters. <laughs> 200th was where things started to go downhill. We didn't really do anything. I don't even remember what we did. 10 years, we didn't do anything. Well, the thing is, when we were at episode 75, did you ever think, like, if you thought that at some point we'd be at episode 250, we maybe would have made less of a big deal out of it. <laughs> <laughs> that might be true, yeah. And you know, the only reason we're celebrating these round number episodes is because of our bodies. We have 10, 10 fingers and 10 toes. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, why would you bring that up? <laughs> well, Tabler, because in the main segment today, we're going to be talking about a uh, classic article. Is this, does this count as our classic series of articles? Yes. Yeah, it's so. been a while, but yes. Yeah. Uh, the Contemporary Theory of Metaphor by George Lakoff from 1993. But before that you have a I have, you have an agenda you you came to me with this agenda well i if i'd call it an agenda but <laughs> i had an idea that you know like we live in cancel culture apparently i mean uh, so they say you're, you're so my stepmother it. says anyway. <laughs> um you know like we should at least take advantage of it on the on the canceling side you know like we there. we get to cancel people by the way, no no Thanksgiving episode? Um, we didn't record. It just didn't work out for when she was uh, here for Thanksgiving. But we're going to, I'm, I'm going to go there and we're going to do one for the holidays. Uh-huh. And yeah, the idea is maybe to do it on that uh, Hillary and Chelsea Clinton series, Gutsy, which she has been <laughs> just traumatized by just the very existence of it. And I'm sure it's terrible, but like, uh, a, you said it's a, is that a, it's a podcast or like a TV no, show? No, it's a TV show. I think it's on Apple TV plus. So I'm surprised yeah. you, it's not on your radar because you <laughs> love all things Apple. <laughs> well, until they start doing shows with Hillary and Chelsea Clinton. 
and they start beefing with your hero, uh, Elon Musk. Oh, God. Um, right. Although well, apparently like, that got resolved and civilization is saved for now. You know, thank God. Thank God. Yeah. So uh, I, I had an idea when we were struggling for opening segments ideas that we would just each get to cancel three things. It can be a person. It can be a practice. It can be a phenomenon. It can be whatever you want. We cancel it and it's gone. Like it's gone from the public consciousness. Right. We're not killing anyone. <laughs> no, we're not assassinating <laughs> anyone. Right. And, uh, you know, I believe everybody has the right to do or say whatever they want. <laughs> I, I do too. <laughs> um, uh, but okay. Do you want to, do you want to start? You want me to start? I think so. You'll set the tone. All right. So this is my first one. And this was the one that popped into my mind when I even had this idea. Cause it was right around the time of the election. Nate Silver, canceled. <laughs> Completely just done, done with him, done with the, the whole thing. You've seen enough. I've seen enough, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not because he, you know, he played a role in turning politics into a horse race where all the coverage, virtually all the coverage is on who's going to win and, uh, instead of like what would actually happen if they did win. What are their policies, right? Um, because he played a part in that, but everybody does that. That's just how... It is, um, whether yeah. you do it in the Nate Silver way or not. Also not, and this might surprise you, canceling him because he moneyballed politics and killed like the romance and the drama <laughs> of the political pundit, you know, and their narratives about the various candidates and the voters and the demographics and all that. Because all that stuff was god-awful anyway. And, he, and Nate Silver is just a different flavor of god-awful in that sense, right? Yeah. Um, the reason he's getting canceled is because he fucking wanted, and, and this is the only time I like have him unmuted probably on Twitter was after the, around the election time. He fucking whines about every person who doesn't understand probability and like polling to the degree that he finds acceptable. And he will quote tweet literally anyone. He will try to t dunk on some guy with nine followers who gave him shit about a polling error or something that he didn't <laughs> foresee or some like, oh, this you said it was 70% that this person would win and they lost. And he's like, and he's, he, it's just, it's just, it's the whining I can't take it. It's like, he's won, right? He's turned everything into numbers and algorithms and models. He took whatever tiny little drop of humanity there was in <laughs> politics and and just stomped on it, got got rid of it. He's won. You don't have to fucking whine about it. It's like the Marvel people who whine about <laughs> Martin Scorsese. It's like it's not <laughs> enough that you, that like you can't go to a fucking movie because it's playing on like seven screens, like you know the Eternals or or Wakanda Forever or whatever. It's like you also have to get Martin Scorsese to uh, admit that this is great art. It, I, that, it's the whining that I can't take. That's Isn't it Martin Scorsese who started the whining? I feel like that could have easily gone like Martin Scorsese who started whining about Marvel. Marvel had he was asked a question. He was asked a question. Mar Nate Silver was asked a question. <laughs> no. He is a very active engager in this stuff. Uh, Martin Scorsese doesn't go on Twitter and like quote tweet some like dumbass Marvel fan who's like, uh, good fellas and taxi drivers suck and all he does is make movie about gangsters. And like, like, he, like Martin Scorsese is so above that. That's the thing. Nate Silver, if he was uncancelable like Martin Scorsese, he would be above all this bullshit. But he's not above it. He is... He is uh, immersed in it he is under it 
So it's his it's his apparent pettiness given his outsized influence. Um, yes. That's especially bothering. <laughs> I, there was something that Joe just triggered me. Uh, I don't know, like a few days after the election when he was still doing this like bullshit that he's been doing for the last eight years. And it's just like, shut the fuck up. We get it. Okay. And the people who don't get it aren't going to get it because you dunked on them um, and, and whined about them. He's going to be really <clears throat> sad when he hears this. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, all right, I'm, I'm going to pick my. Tears. I'm going to pick a person uh, okay. as well for my first one. Um, there's just no way I could say as much as you've said uh, about Nate Silver because this guy is, is so fucking dumb that nothing that he does or says is even uh, worth talking about more than five minutes. But it's DJ Khaled. <laughs> Do you know DJ Khaled? I mean, I know the name, but you got to, and then maybe I'll... Uh... Okay, he is this fuck who's been putting out uh, hip-hop albums that he quote-unquote produces for years. But here's what bothers me about him the most. He is the most arrogant son of a bitch that you've ever heard. Uh, like, like, he's... Before Kanye was crazy, uh, full crazy, crazy. Um, the shit that he'd say about him crazy? Being, well... <laughs> Uh, you didn't think no, the Ale yeah. Alec Jones uh, <laughs> appearance showed like yeah, I evidence Alex, of, of I've never seen Alex Jones step right out of his character so quickly. <laughs> wait, 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 hold on, hold on, wait, wait, what? <laughs> also, like, what was he doing? And I'm sure this was explained, but what was he doing in that mask in the, in the gimp costume? In, yeah, I, the, the, was that a thing? Need, he doesn't need reasons. I yeah, need no. reasons. <laughs> reason is is a slave to his passion uh, he's done that before I don't, I don't understand it i just i'm gonna i think I, if i remember i'll put a link to dj khaled doing uh an interview with um do you know that youtube series where people just try really really hot uh, barbecue sauces yeah um okay the dj khaled one he thinks that he's so good at everything. He refuses to ever uh, like admit any weakness. He'll say like, I'm number one, I'm the best, we always win. That's constant, constant, constant. Yeah. So much so that like, it's like a, a shitty motivational speaker algorithm. Right. Um, and <laughs> he's talking about how badass he is and how he can take anything. And then he just starts crying because because he's he can't handle the hotness but like his but he still won't like he can't he just can't say like oh fuck i underestimated this like he can't he's constantly out there whining uh when he doesn't get the number one album claiming that he's like this amazing hip-hop producer and he's just he just needs to stop and he needs to go away and i i would press the button you know that's an interesting type the person who can just never admit weakness or vulnerability in anything even when it's the obvious thing that would actually like make yeah. them more exactly. uh, relatable and people would admire him more and all the things that they want the things that will satisfy their vanity but they can't do that because they just didn't get to where they were by doing that you know uh, yeah it's very it's very very weird like it's I never t <laughs> exactly trump yeah <laughs> um but is, is it is this shtick do you think no like, that's the thing all. that bothers me the most like if it's he was a, andy kaufmaning this shit right. but like he is so sincerely believed that he's number one i'll give you an example uh um tyler the creator who's an amazing artist but like nowhere near like the the like dj Khaled puts out albums and it has like jay-z and not like everybody is a guest on his album and tyler creator is a genius who makes 
weird music in his bedroom. And and uh, they both debuted uh, their albums on the same day. And and Tyler the Creator got the number one spot. And DJ Khaled could not let it go. Like he was so angry. And like, what would you do if that happened to you? You'd just say like, "Hey, good job, other guy." Like you know, I have the number. I'll get two you album. next like, time. Yeah, no, he could not fucking let it go. He was like Nate Silver. On Stop Twitter. the steal. <laughs> exactly. It was. It was that bad. It was that yeah. bad. So you, I'm. I'm trying not to uh, body shame him, but I'll show you a picture of him too. Um, all right, that was my number one. What's your number two? Uh, this is one that maybe uh, only is going to resonate with uh, academics, but uh, footnotes that refer to other footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> like nested like yeah that. well yeah you're reading this thing like in a book and it'll be like c note 42 on chapter 23 and now you gotta fucking go to if you want to know like what this footnote is you have to go and kind of scroll through the other the the other chapter to see where that note might be you know like oh there's 38 so i guess it's probably three pages from now i don't know and it's just like the dumbest thing and sometimes it's like like longer the actual c note 43 chapter five is just longer than what the actual reference is <laughs> And that's what drives me crazy is when like it would have been fewer characters to just give me the reference again because I didn't because I don't have a photographic fucking memory and I didn't remember it uh, the first time completely. I didn't remember what note 43 was. So I feel like it would be fun to just keep keep like doing referential notes so that you have to like right it'll be like a Borges story <laughs> it's like and you have to have your fingers all through the pages like a choose your own adventure when you you don't want to make a choice <laughs> yeah and it just takes you on these different journeys <laughs> i have an academic one uh that's kind of petty like that too and i'm guilty of this but so what um, the whole cute pun title colon serious title thing yeah. Like I give it all right. Like give it up. Like it's enough. Just say what your paper's about. Like like and you see this. I, I hate to like break the heart of, of grad students who've of course been thinking about something for so long and have the perfect pun just ready to go for when they write this paper. And I'm just like, but don't. <laughs> but just, just keep it to yourself. Now let me play devil's advocate. Some <laughs> some might argue that that's a little rich coming from us who do like the anality of evil which was <laughs> yeah kind of seems like we're doing the same thing that they're doing and from the exact same reason right here <laughs> so so first of all uh it's different <laughs> <laughs> it's completely different <laughs> um uh, uh no we're constantly searching for puns but we but we do podcast you know you need a title a week uh, or every other week and we're entertaining ourselves one of the things that bothers me about the cute title colon serious title format is that the serious title all of a sudden gets straight to business. It's like, <laughs> right, 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 right. It's like, they're great. The effects of children's nutrition on, what, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, and it would be more creative to try to combine blend the two, like yeah, the one clever phrase. and yeah. Uh, yeah, those are our best titles. Too, that's right. Sometimes. That's right. <laughs> but I will say that, like, the, the paper that we'll probably do next for our opening segment, I like Hot for Robots. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. And, on, uh, and by the way, anybody who looks up my CV, you're going to see just a ton of those papers. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm not. Uh, no, I, I've done like, I don't know if, no, I don't think this got published, but I've done like <laughs> how I learned to stop worrying and love. <laughs> uh, like just the worst, just the, you know, the, the lowest of the low. Um, and I probably thought, oh, it's funny. It's like Dr. Strange. You know? like, uh, <laughs> totally. I, all right. You know, I'll be sad to see it go. I'm glad Hot for Robots <laughs> got, got out before it, this was canceled because <laughs> uh, what is the subtitle of that? Yeah. Sexual arousal increases willingness to have sex with robots. <laughs> Doesn't sexual arousal increase willingness to have sex with right. anything? <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right like with like a fucking like a kitchen counter you know that's like that's genre porn <laughs> if you're like if you have a boner well of course oh my cheese, God. cheese grater looks hot if you have a sufficiently strong boner <laughs> um uh, that's right. not funny because we have one of those cheese graters where you go like this you know you like <laughs> A grinder. Yeah, it's like a grinder. It's like uh, the kids it's like the kids in the Pink Floyd video. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's my dick coming out of March <laughs> cheese crater. Just a little piece. <laughs> uh, um all right. Uh what's my th- oh no, your second one. Oh no, that was your uh, no, second that one. Was We're on my third one. I think you're gonna like this. Um, is singing in the rain. <laughs> Wait, what did one? Have- this sucks for a lot of people who I know. Like, I think my wife loves this movie. My stepmother definitely does. Um, but it's canceled. It's done. It's Wait. over. Uh, ever since the sight and sound pulled came on, and it's like Wait. the tenth best movie of all time according to like sight and sound critics, which is just who are who are sight and sound? This isn't like AFI. This is a- it's like. A- no, this is a British uh, film, very respectable, uh, um, you know, one of the top film magazines, um, mm-hmm. cinema magazines, and they put up uh, every 10 years, they do a poll of all critics, like, you know, defined, I don't know how. The, everyone gives their top 10 and they combine it all. It's actually kind of fun in that you get yeah. a little slice of how people are thinking about movies. Um, let me hold it. Sight and sound. I'll give you the top 10. So the, the number one film is Jean Dielman, Vantois, uh, K. de Commerce. <laughs> Ta- yeah, it's an address. Um, uh, number two is Vertigo, Citizen Kane, Tokyo Story, In the Mood for Love, 2001 in Space Odyssey. Nice. Yeah. Beau Travail, Mulholland Drive. Awesome. Man with a movie camera. Singing in the Rain then is number 10. Like ahead of The Godfather, ahead of uh, The Rules of the Game, ahead of Taxi Driver, Goodfellas. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> like, I mean, like it's just a, it's just a b- bizarre thing the, the, that everybody loves that movie. I mean, not for much longer now that it's canceled. But like, <laughs> And I would think that you would hate it. I, have you ever seen no, it? I've seen it, yeah. Oh, God. So, so my hate for musicals comes from the few that I was forced to watch mm-hmm. um, as a child. And, and I remember Singing in the Rain feeding into that uh hatred um more than even sound of mu- like sound of music i was like fine that's you know it's cute family, <laughs> what do you expect whatever, you right. know? yeah <laughs> Sing- i just was felt so dumb to me there's something also very creepy about gene kelly like it's like sociopathic 
you know, uh, like just his voice. I, I, but it's about the movie industry and that stuff is good. And the going from silent movies to sound and all of that. And that stuff's fine, but it's just fine. It's not the, it's not the 10th best movie of all time. Right. It's not it's better than ins- persona. <laughs> no. Yeah. It seems rather insane. If there were, if you had to put a musical in the top 10, what would it be? I guess, my, my fair lady. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. But it wouldn't be. Like, I wouldn't put it in the top 10, but I think it's right. really good. I think everybody's very good in it. Um, and it's an awesome musical. So, yeah. yeah. Um, we should do our top 10s, maybe for a bonus episode or something like that. Like, just top 10 favorite movies. It would favorite be hard. Movies. Yeah. Not it, like the best movies, but yeah, our favorites. Yeah, it would be hard. It would be hard for me to hear random French movies that I've never heard of before on your list. And then I, I come with Back to the Future. <laughs> My number five is Cleo from five to seven. Agnes Varda's 1962. A lot, there's a lot of the movies that we've done are very high on the list. Yeah. yeah. I, I am, have a true dilemma here as to which one uh, to pick. But I think I have to pick this one to be true to myself. But it might get me canceled. Okay. But I, but I do want to erase this. <laughs> the okay, fucking gonna... term Latinx. <laughs> oh, yeah. I agree. Can, can we stop trying to make it a thing? Yeah. Can, just every poll of any like Spanish speak, native Spanish speaker from Latin America, nobody wants that. It's like a hand select pick of like academics who, who want everybody else to start using the term. And look, it's not that I think that that um language shouldn't evolve like i just think it's it it feels like a bunch of uh i don't know it elites, feels like liberal elites yeah dictating feels, to like people yeah exactly it feels like feels like my language is being colonized just like, and yeah. whenever i say shit like that <laughs> somebody will say no the actual the first people were like actually a group of scholars from mexico or whatever i don't care they're you know canceled I mean. they're canceled too <laughs> <laughs> And what sucks is that my fellow like Latin American or Hispanic uh, academics who use it like in their tweets and stuff in like private correspondence we all hate. It. Like, no, I know. It, you can tell. They use it through gritted teeth, it seems yeah. like. Like you can even like when they uh, like tweet about it or do like you can tell like <laughs> we don't want to be doing this either. But I don't, I don't feel like taking a bunch of shit. Like today, you know? Yeah, it's like the the white lady at the DEI office is going to write an email to my department (laughs) chair. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Yeah. Well, Um, uh, you can say that though, right? Yeah. But then, you know, I'll always make someone mad. There's there's always like uh, Latin Americans who who feel like they're more Latin American than other Latin Americans and and, uh, don't, yeah, they'll let me know. Um, But fuck it. Both of my parents were South American. It's my first language. Like, fuck you all. <laughs> You're the Uncle Tom. You're like Samuel Jackson and uh, Django. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, that's one of those. And I think land acknowledgments is in this category too, where it's like people are too dug in to um, yeah. go back on it. But like, I don't, you, you don't find anybody defending it with any kind of heart you know given that it's so well documented that uh hispanic and latin american people don't want it that like i th- i really do think that now it's also because of trans issues rather yeah. than 
Yeah, uh, but then you have to like, you know, there, there are just languages that work like that. And it's like yeah. to to change a whole language uh, um, from the outside it. like that. It's just, you know, there, there are just better ways to, to fight that fight. Um, I'm ironically language policing the language police. I, I understand that I am. But this is the whole point of our canceling. We're, this is, yeah. yeah. Did you have any uh, honorable mentions? I did. I thought they were too sweeping. Um, but one of them was going to be, again, a self-indictment. I think it's time for trolley problem research and psychology to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that like already kind of canceled? Though? It's it, it, you th- You'd think so, but the rise of driverless cars uh, yeah. or the promise of driverless cars brought it back with full force. Um, but is that still going on? We did an episode on that like six years ago with the, the, that, that MIT thing where they're, uh, where we, you know, it's like the old lady and the two cats or, or the <laughs> bank robber. <laughs> yeah. Old guy. Like, it's just so stupid. Yeah. Uh, my friend who was part of that, uh, during a conference, uh, called, called me out on all that shit talking I did about his paper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. See. <laughs> what they um, really need to do is figure out a way for them to like let you out of the car if it's like on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't need to be making fine distinctions. Ejection between, like, seats. Yeah. And yeah. just have it not, yeah, like hit people or explode or whatever, you know? Yeah. Like work yeah. on that. Did you have any others? You know, speaking of... <laughs> cars that lock up and don't let you out when they're on fire. Like the Elon, I like Elon Musk. I mean, it's kind of an obvious one, but man, is he just grating right now? Just like such a pain in the ass. Like yeah. in, the, in in some of, it's a little different than Nate Silver, but it's the same kind of thing where he, like if he was the man that he kind of poses to be, he wouldn't engage in all this yeah. stuff. And he would, there's something especially annoying. Like he's not interesting or funny or anything like that. Yeah. The so, best, the best uh, move that I made for my own just sanity was I went into my Twitter filters and I, um, I filtered out, any mention of Elon, Elon Musk, Musk at Elon Musk. That's and a that, good idea. that actually changed my feed. It's still yeah. some, some stuff still gets through because people are like constantly subtweeting him. And right. So sometimes I'm curious and I have to go, but like right. it, it does make a difference. I, I like, I actually think cancel just Twitter. You know, so I was talking to my friend yesterday and he was like, how much would Twitter have to charge you for you just to not do it? And I was like, $1. Yeah, <laughs> if I have to, if I have to even fill out a form, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like it's definitely like I feel like it's probably having a negative effect on my life already. Like if they that like just please like give me a reason. Yeah. <laughs> this was after a particularly active day on Twitter too for me. <laughs> yeah, seriously, You're, we're we're uh, the quality of our show is going to be uh, suffer because of our inability to get off of Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you just for no reason picked a fight with me. There was reason behind your vitriolic attack on people who who use closed captions. It's not, it was so not vitriolic. It was just like, look, character. Obviously, like it, the thing is invented for people who have hearing loss or me or subtitles for people in different languages. If you're not one of those people, like just watch the thing as it was uh, intended for you to watch to the best of your ability. <laughs> right, but what you had forgotten was that the person who originally tweeted that was referencing a podcast episode where I specifically said the person that I watch these things with has hearing loss, and yet you w- went on an attack on on uh, closed captions. 
And so I had to def- no. I, my 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 thing is targeted at every Gen Z person and every except my daughter who's uh, good about this and every person who replied to me on Twitter pretty much today <laughs> who just puts on subtitles because it's like I think that you really have a a blind eye to one people who for whom English is not their native language. You kind of admitted that, but like you weren't raised in a, in a household where that's the case. So like you can't. You can't tell that, like, obviously it's a trade-off. Like, obviously, aesthetically, it suffers because you have That's those. all I wanted people to admit. Right. But they just wanted you to admit that, yeah, it's a trade-off, too. Like, I get why you would want, like, the person who wrote the words, also, their creator intent was for you to understand the words. The people I'm referring to, this should have been obvious, are the people who just don't have any of that. They're like me. They can understand things as well as I can understand things. Well. The people who are tweeting at you today may or may not be like you, but few of them certainly weren't. Like one of them did bring up the foreign language thing, and yeah, and then I was like, "It's a." Then in that case, I don't know how good your English is, but it's a borderline case, like it was for me when I like I had to make a decision when I lived in France and I could actually speak French fairly well. Like, do I want subtitles or not? And like, what? So what did you choose? Like, I think it just depended. Um, but as soon as my French dipped, I put subtitles back on. Uh, but I, like, I didn't pretend that, like, I was some, you know, hero uh, against, it's, like, ableism or something. <laughs> no, but it's more the sort of, like, the the inflexibility of your rule that, like, if you turn it on, like, even if you just are, like, I don't know, my baby's sleeping and I kind of don't want the thing to be loud and so I'm going to turn them on. Like the feelings that you were expressing were so black and white about like destroying creator intent that it's Twitter. Like the nuances, <laughs> I was very unfairly attacked. It was very unfair. How people were attacking. <laughs> people can, let's let people be the judge. And I didn't <laughs> pick the fight either. Uh, <laughs> it was brought to me. I was accused of ableism, even though like <laughs> someone thought they owned me by saying, "Should we not wear glasses when we read?" <laughs> It's okay. Somebody told me that you pwned me, which yeah. is even worse. I fucking pwned you. I did. <laughs> well, when we come back, we are going to talk about <laughs> the deep metaphorical structure of language, except the things that we've canceled, because those things are gone. <laughs> they no longer exist. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by one of our favorite sponsors of all time. You probably already know that givewell.org. Many of us open our hearts and make donations during the holiday season, but when you donate, how can you feel confident that your donations are really making a big impact? You could do weeks of research to find charities, figure out what they do, how effective they are, and how the charity might use additional money, or you could just go visit givewell.org. There you'll find free research and recommendations about the charities that can save or improve lives the most per dollar. GiveWell spends over 40,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only directs funding to a few of the highest impact evidence-backed opportunities they've found. Over 100,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $1 billion so far. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save over 150,000 lives and improve the lives of millions more. And using GiveWell's research is free. GiveWell wants as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about high-impact giving. They publish all of their research and recommendations on their site 
absolutely for free, no sign-up required. They allocate your tax-deductible donations to the charity or fund you choose without taking a cut. So seriously, these wonderful, wonderful spreadsheet nerds have done so much of this work for you so that you don't have to. If you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $100 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. To claim your match, go to GiveWell.org and pick podcast and enter Very Bad Wizards at checkout. Make sure they know that you heard about GiveWell from Very Bad Wizards to get your donation matched. Our thanks to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we like to take a moment to thank everybody for all their support. We really appreciate it. Um, all the ways that you reach out to us. And I feel like we've we've been getting like a, a few emails that have just been making my day. I don't know if you've you've seen some of these really yeah. nice emails. Yeah. As usual. As usual. And uh, and people love the ambulators too, which <laughs> makes ah, my... <laughs> that, that, that extra cockles get <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll let you talk more about that. But if you want to reach out to us, you can email us, uh, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Uh, you can tweet to us at Tamler or at Peas or at verybadwizards. You can, if you want to discuss with other people like-minded or maybe not, um, Join the community at Reddit, uh, reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards. Norm, you, really, they just talk about, like, Sam Harris. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> pro, pro or con. Like, that's what all the uh, the real action is on our uh, Reddit right. page. But, right. Yeah. At least our, at least our, uh, our Redditors, um, like, showed up for us on Sam Harris's page when they, when they talk about uh, very, his very bad wizard's appearances. Well, I, I don't think the the Sam Harris redditors need any more to like, you know, spend any more time on Reddit than they are. <laughs> so it's fine. Uh, so yeah, you could join Reddit. You can follow our Instagram account, uh, Very Bad Wizards Instagram. Um, if you find it in your heart to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or even leave us a review. We really appreciate that. You can subscribe on those. You can subscribe uh, on Spotify or on Apple. Anywhere you get your podcasts, uh, we appreciate it. So thank you for all the support that you give us and for reaching out to us and for making us feel like we got a little community. Yes, thank you. And if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, you can find all the different ways of doing that on the support page on our website, including where to get a bunch of good swag, um, give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal, and um, join the growing, you know, 
it's growing. It's not getting smaller. Uh, Patreon community. Yeah. Uh, we got that ambulators bump and uh, we've kept it and it's just great. Like, yeah. uh, love, love that. So at $1 and up per episode, per main episode, um, you get all the volumes of Dave's Beats and you get ad-free episodes of all of our podcasts. Really the whole archive, right? Yeah. Is on Patreon. Yeah. And um, if you want to go uh, join at $2 and up, that's when you get all of our bonus episodes, including right now our Ambulators series of podcasts that we release on off weeks. This is on Deadwood. Right now, season one, we are through the first nine episodes. And then next Tuesday, we will release an episode on the 10th on Woo, uh, Woo. which is a great uh, great episode and we've really enjoyed this and honestly my favorite thing is just hearing that we've gotten people to into Deadwood yeah oh, it's the Love best that. yeah so that's at two dollars and up per episode five dollars and up you get to vote on the topic of you of uh, all the re- suggested topics uh, twice a year for us and this year the winner was stoicism but a runner-up was what we talked about or what we're about to talk about um, in the main segment on uh, yeah. metaphors and George Lakoff. So uh, thank you for that. Like this, it really is the gift that keeps on giving <laughs> our Patreon. And then at $10 and up, you can, oh, you also get all of Dave's intro psych lectures and a couple of lectures of mine. And then at $10 and up, you get to ask us questions every month and then we post a video where we answer your questions and then also post an audio form of that for everybody at the $2 and up um, level. So that's all the levels. Thank you so much. We really appreciate uh, all the participation and uh, we're just astonished by the generosity. Thank you. Thank you. All right, let's talk about this 1993 paper called The Contemporary Theory of Metaphor. It was written by George Lakoff, who is he's a linguist. He actually studied with Chomsky, um, and then they had a falling out, I guess. Um, but Lakoff in 1980 wrote a book we alluded to in the uh, first segment called Metaphors We Live By. With Mark Johnson, right? Yeah. I feel like he's the Mark Frost of this couple. <laughs> Yeah. Like people don't give him enough credit. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, so that book sort of set the stage for a new understanding of metaphors um, and how they work just in terms of like co- human cognition, like the role that metaphors play. And in this paper, published whatever, 13 years after that book, um, Lakoff lays out that theory he refers to as the contemporary theory of metaphor and contrasts it with uh, the old way of understanding what metaphor was and the role that it played in the mind. And what he says here is that the traditional approach to metaphor, it's very simple. There is uh, literal language, and then every once in a while, like people will use metaphors. But for everyday normal life, the kind of language that we use and the only kind of language that we need to use, literal language, metaphor is largely unnecessary. It's a nice flourish. It can, it's an exactly uh, like poetry, yeah. whatever. 
And also that you can, anytime someone uses uses metaphorical language, you can translate it easily into like what it literally means. Right. And it's that whole distinction that he's attacking, the literal versus metaphorical. Right. Metaphors shouldn't be understood as these sort of one-off linguistic expressions. In fact, the argument that he's making is they're not really linguistic. They're far deeper than that. They're conceptual. So metaphor isn't just about the words that you use to describe something, but it is fundamentally about how we think and reason about the world around us. So metaphors, and here he uses the term conceptual metaphors to distinguish it from just expressions. So conceptual metaphors are not just figures of speech, but they're like modes of thinking. The language that comes with them is sort of secondary. And for Lakoff, these conceptual metaphors guide the way we think about the world. It guides our behavior and it even guides how we understand and make sense of reality around us. Yeah. You know, like I'm starting to think everything is some variation of this, but it is like a Kantian categories kind of thing where like it is a lens through which we process uh, the world. These very deeply embedded metaphors in our thought. And and like it's, we always thought, language was first, metaphor came second, but it's really the reverse. It's that metaphors are the fundamental thing and language is just various ways of expressing the metaphors that are deep down in our, the structure of our minds. Yeah, exactly. And there's a few things that I, I like about this um, approach. One is like, until I started reading stuff like this. I even when you're reading this article and he's not directly talking about metaphor, the all the metaphors start popping out to you. Mm-hmm. Like the, the metaphors that you just rely on and you yeah. realize that like, oh yeah, that is metaphorical. He, you know, he it's not as if he is denying that there's a difference between literal and metaphorical. Like that wouldn't make any sense because the way that metaphor works is uh mapping one domain onto another. It's just that he thinks that there is, yeah, there is this sort of low-level domain of sensory physical experience that is literal. But to make sense of that, um, we map on oftentimes other domains. We use the sensory domains as source domains to understand more abstract ideas. So for instance, uh, spatial metaphors can guide the way that we think about time. So you're either, your clock is ahead or behind. Um, so there is, there is the literal layer. I mean, there is, but it's sometimes not something that we can even describe without metaphors. Yeah, it's hard. It becomes hard. As you start trying to talk in any complex way, like about any of these experiences, you realize you lapse into metaphor. And here, and so here's one of the things that, that he points out that I should admit, like this was written in 93 and decades of research have been done on this. And I don't know how much has been borne out or not. This is kind of the point of the classic articles. But he says, look, if it were just the case that every once in a while we'll use linguistic flourishes to try to make sense of something on an ad hoc basis, on an ad fucking hoc basis, Tim, <laughs> um, <laughs> then uh, you shouldn't see too much similarity in the kinds of metaphors that are used uh, for different domains. So one, I think one claim would be that you wouldn't see the same metaphors get used over and over again across culture. And two, you wouldn't see this cluster of metaphors by domain, a metaphor like arguments are like war. 
linguistically, you could just leave it at that and say like that, the argument that you and I had on Twitter was like a battle. Right. Um, I had to retreat when I realized I was. Yeah. Peaked blinders occasionally with. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, I wanted you to surrender uh, yeah. and I fought dirty. Um, yeah, very much. And so, <laughs> and so, so what you realize is that, that what you're doing is you are mapping a whole entire conceptual domain and the language that you use uh, to describe in this case arguments is all borrowing from that domain. So they're not one-offs. They're not, they're not no. flourishes. They are scaffolds um, yeah. where you, you're really using that domain to understand the other domain. And it's very hard to imagine not using it. So like, we'll talk about this in a sec, but like the love is a journey yeah. metaphor. It's like really hard to imagine how you would describe a relationship without using that metaphor. I take the insight that he got from this guy, Reddy, a good way of expressing this part of what you're saying, the, the idea of a conduit, right? Like yeah. um, where you are searching for a metaphor to express what you think, you need the metaphor to express the thing <laughs> that it is that you're trying to right. express. You, there's no literal, if, if it was like what I, apparently, I guess, the classical idea was there's just literal language and the metaphors are a way of gussying it up a little bit making it more fun maybe even making it more relatable or whatever then you should be able to at least give a literal uh explanation of what you're trying to say and maybe it wouldn't be that interesting or fun but at least you would get across the meaning and like his, i think the point as i understand it is that, uh, no, we have this thing where it's like, the only way that I can express this thought is through a metaphor. And I just can't right. think of what that is. Right. It's like the basis for thought. Yeah. And so, and here it gets into one of the big arguments about how the mind really works deep down fundamentally. And the arguments between people like Chomsky, um, who believe that the mind is basically symbolic manipulation and and this conceptual metaphor approach but there is some there is something appealing to the thought that even perhaps before we had language and we were just thinking about the world around us before we could actually express it with words that we were already relying on concepts that were grounded in our physical experience it could be that you were even thinking pe people before they could say tomorrow is in the distance a year is in the further distance. They were thinking that way. Right. Um, so should we talk about the love as a journey? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, you know, not being familiar with any of this stuff, right. I was surprised. Like, this took me by surprise how accurate it seemed. It's right. like you have these relationships and, and he maps it on where to love as a journey. The lovers correspond to travelers. The love relationship corresponds to the vehicle. The lovers' common goals correspond to their common destinations on the journey. Difficulties in the relationship correspond to the impediments of travel. So this right. is like we're spinning our reels. We're, we've stuck. I, we're stuck. I feel like we went backwards. Like yeah. all of this stuff in terms of trying to describe what's going on in a rela relationship, we do this thing all the time. The The thing that like clicked for me was like trying to figure out, okay, what if I didn't use this metaphor <laughs> and I was trying to explain my relationship with somebody? I don't know how I would do that. Like right. what's a possible way of expressing like a relationship that's not progressing or <laughs> right. maturing or, but you know, like even saying that doesn't get 
uh, at it as much as the vehicle um, that is stalled or spinning its wheels or whatever. Yeah, totally. And it's not as if a human relationship, like a romantic uh, bond with another human being, is that complicated uh, a concept, right? That's what's kind of mind-blowing about it is that even with a concept that is so much a part of every human being's life, um, it's hard to talk about it without yeah. making appeal to even a more physically grounded and a very specific kind. We're at a crossroads. It really yeah. is like you're on kind of a road trip or a boat trip. Look how far we've come. It's been a long, bumpy road. We can't turn back. Um, we have to go our separate ways. Our marriage is on the rocks. Like even something like that, which you would think, well, that's not. Uh, well, oh, yeah, it is. That's like a ship, right? <laughs> right. These things are so uh, fundamental to how we talk about relationships. It is kind of amazing the degree to which that maps on to how we talk about it. Yeah. And so you could have a, a couple of, of different views about what's going on here. And there is one view that I, I, I guess people still have, but maybe would be attributed to the, the kind of classic view, which is, well, look, these metaphors, somebody used them at some point, and all of these just became idioms. Right. And those idioms got stored in memory. And so now I say our relationship is stuck. And I'm not using the metaphor in any, the, I'm not borrowing the concept of travel and vehicles in any deep way. I'm just, that is just simply the idiomatic expression that's now been stored in memory. But Lakoff wants to say, if that were the case, you wouldn't get such cohesion in these mappings. Like you wouldn't be able to create a brand new metaphor that totally made sense. We're yeah. driving in the fast lane on the freeway of love. Like that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but it shouldn't. If, you know, this was a superficial thing. Yeah. And so part of what comes out of this that I was alluding to before is that um, cognition is grounded in physical sensory experience in a way that ended up directly leading to a whole approach to human cognition in, in cognitive science and psychology that we refer to as embodied cognition which was, I think, a very different way uh, of thinking uh, about psychology. And the strongest hypothesis there that I can think of, the strongest way to frame the embodiment hypothesis is that we wouldn't even have these concepts like, say, love or relationship without having the more basic concepts. We need to scaffold off of the, the basic embodied, um, I am a physical body moving around the physical space of the world. Um, in order to even have the thought I'm in a relationship, for instance. Like, that's the, that's the hard thesis. Is it that we wouldn't be able to have the relationship or we wouldn't be able to talk about to it? To right? talk about it, I guess, right? Yeah. 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 Or, or maybe think about it. Or and that's not that, but I think it helps to, to contrast the real stripped-down version, metaphors are nothing but linguistic flourishes, to the extreme version, which is metaphors are so part of what... Uh, allows us to even have concepts that without uh, having bodies in this physical space, our concepts would be completely different. So somebody who is really into the embodiment thing would say, like a brain in a vat could have all the computational power that we have, but would never be able to um, 
get any of these concepts off the ground, so to speak, <laughs> because they, because they didn't off have the ground. There was very something very cool about reading this, where you realize how much of life is metaphorical, <laughs> and, and way more than I would have thought, like by many orders of magnitude. Yeah, what there was a part where he's talking about quantities more being higher. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and I was like, "Well, of course, because it's a higher number." But then I was wait, like, "Wait, wait no, that is higher. It's, it's not, not a like, higher number." Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. It's not like the number twenty-five exists on a plane, that's like, <laughs> yeah, right? You know, like on the on the ceiling, and uh, number five is on the floor, right? Yeah. And so I, I'm just like, "Well, no," but like when you see a graph, like the numbers are higher, but yeah. th- that's a result. <laughs> that's a result of the metaphor. Yeah, like, the reason we were so fooled by this is because it's so embedded in us that we just take that to be literal. Like we take the the number, like uh, more is higher to be literal uh, rather than figurative. But, you know, if we think about it for a second, it's like, no, you could do that same thing, but more is lower on a graph rather than higher. You know, you could do that. It just doesn't make sense to us. And it would be very weird for us to try to process that. You know, I was telling you that one of the things that clicked in terms of this as a theory that explains more than I would have even thought once you get the cool love is a journey thing is this idea that there's a hierarchy of metaphors and that uh, something like love is a journey is a special case of uh, a, a deeper metaphor that life is a journey. That is in itself a, a special case of I guess just the event structure metaphor, which yeah. maybe we can talk about, um, the kind of fundamental metaphor for describing this kind of phenomena. Changes or movements, causes or forces, actions or self-propelled movements, purposes or destinations, means or paths, difficulties or impediments to motion. The self over time or things that happen over time, events, the claim is basically like we need this more concrete language to even talk about to to even talk about it so that's it is central that event structure um and so he says what we have found is that various aspects of event structure including notions like states changes processes actions causes purposes and means are characterized cognitively via metaphor in terms of space motion and force so to say i'm out of gas we're running out of steam or quit pushing me around She's leading him on. She's holding him back. He's carrying quite a load. It's it's cool, right? It's very cool. <laughs> it's really cool. it's unbelievable, actually. Like it's kind of mind blowing. Like, <laughs> this episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You know, uh, amongst geeks, there's a uh, saying: RTFM. If you if you know, you know what I'm talking about. Read the manual. Um, And it's usually given as advice for people who are asking questions without having actually just read the stupid manual about the thing that they're asking questions. Wouldn't it be great if you could do that for life, if life actually came with a manual? Unfortunately, it doesn't. So when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck. It's normal to not know where to go, who to talk to, what to do. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether it's a career change, a new relationship, or even becoming a new parent. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions 
and learn productive coping skills. So if you're having these kinds of challenges in life, you know, RTFM, except for in this case, uh, the manual is actually talking to a therapist who's trained to help you out. I can speak from experience, but also from the many people who I know who've also had this experience, that therapy can uh, help you in so many different domains of your life. Even if you go in for treatment because of one specific issue, like a relationship or um, anger issues or uh, anxiety, you'll learn tools, um, skills that will actually help you in a bunch of other ways. Which brings us back to BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service. It's matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists who are available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It really couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash VBW. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. So maybe we should go back up and just try to break down like when he gets very specific about like source domain, target domain, um, like with, like how all that works, how, how the mapping works. Okay, we've been t- we've mentioned target and source domains, but uh, like just to to make clear what he's saying, uh, Lakoff is proposing that we map entire conceptual domains onto each other, and that this is what's generating metaphorical expressions. That that's like the linguistic output of the p- conceptual mapping, and so the target domain um, arguments or. Uh, or in our case, love what we were doing. Um, in our case, in, you love in me. our case, yeah. <laughs> oh, um, I love you too. So it's the str- it's the structure of the of the source domain is leveraged for thinking about the target domain, and then like those metaphors right. then will influence how people think about the topics, how they'll uh, attend to, remember, and even process the information about that topic. So. That's one of the things that he ended up like working on uh, later on with his work on politics is he's, he says, if you, if you adhere to this uh, source domain as a way of understanding the target domain, and in his case, he was talking about the difference between conservatives and liberals, where he thought that conservatives adhere to this like strict father uh, model of mm-hmm. a relationship. Yeah. Um, then like all sorts of other things, like other ways of thinking about um, politics and society will come from that metaphor, like whether or not that was the part that you were intending. Um, so like the richness of the interrelationships from right, the target right. domain will affect how you're thinking about the interrelationships right. in the sorry, source domain to the target domain. So if you have a strict father kind of metaphor, um, that is kind of fundamental for your understanding of like society, then, you know, that's going to affect your views on criminal justice and like it's going to, and personal responsibility. So his idea, which, and here's where it can start to get seem oversimplified that the liberals have a more nurturing parent metaphor (laughs) that governs their way of understanding society. Whereas conservatives have the strict father uh, view but conservatives, as I understand his view, like they actually 
understand that and their politics like takes advantage of that, uh, of these mappings. Whereas liberals, because of their obsession with reason and argument and uh, trying to persuade people through evidence and all of that, they are bound to fail because that's not how our thought works. Our thought like takes metaphors that are fundamental for us and maps that on to all these other domains. Yeah, that's right. One of the funny things is originally he did call it strict father and nurturing mother, but I think that he was like... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, right. So the way that these metaphors are influencing us can be sneaky, I think. is And, and one of the things that became controversial about his view uh, later on was that we should start really reframing all of these debates um, by using the nurturing parent metaphor for government. So I forget what his idea was to call like taxes. Call, oh yeah, calling it a membership fee or something like that. You know, like he wanted to just like almost yeah. new speak the shit out of like the political. This is right around 2004 election when when liberals were in trouble. Yeah, right, right. Unlike now. <laughs> Unlike uh, now. No, and, and it's very much in line. I take it with the like Jonathan Haidt and like the Alan Fisk views where reason as a tool of persuasion, reason as we understand it, like logic and evidence and, you know, Bayesian priors and all of that. Yeah. Like that's not going to work for people. That's not how we, it's not even going to work for us really. It's just for whatever reason we, you know, like because of our professions, maybe we're taught to think that that's how people are persuaded and people um, make decisions. But that's just, I, I really do think that he, does, he doesn't think it's like that and that you're going to be at a disadvantage if you're um, deluded about that. Yeah, I guess the question is, is it even, I think you would think it's not even possible to, to reason in that sort of pure way. Um, and, and that's where you might get some debate still but you can mm -hmm. you can see why his his view, for instance, like take take this metaphorical approach to cognition seriously. Um, we'd be going about constructing artificial intelligence in the really wrong way. Yeah, that's like we're not even close to trying to build agents that experience things physically in order to derive concepts. Like we are right. just going the full on symbolic manipulation way. Like toss cognitive operations as if they're mathematical operations and see what comes out. So, so I would think he'd think it's doomed kind of to ever mimic human cognition. Also that, I, so I don't think we emphasize this enough, but he thinks experience is what grounds our kind of fundamental understanding of concepts and the way we conceptualize the world. And, and so you have to actually have those experiences. You have to be like an embodied person that walks around and that goes, you know, from one room to the other and goes from their house to their office or to their friend's house. If you do do that, you're not going to think the same way as a computer that's just running algorithms. Yeah. So here's actually in the heyday of the embodiment approach where like it was the hottest thing in, in psychology. I always thought that this did still seem like a, a too strong a claim. Uh, I think you're right. His view is obviously we're all sort of uh, human beings living in this physical plane. And so we're all going to have a set of experiences that are similar. But the experience is is the nature of that experience is important for how we think. 
So I always wondered whether the people who studied, who took this strong approach in body cognition would really think that, say, um, a person who is congenitally blind would not be able to metaphorically use uh, the concept of vision in in their reasoning, or somebody who was paraplegic or quadriplegic who didn't have that same level of experience, whether or not their conceptual schemas would actually turn out to be different. And yeah. I think that's kind of what he, what you would be forced to say. And that's why I always thought, no, like there really is some level of pure abstract symbolic stuff that we can learn from just thinking. And that seems so empirical also. Like you can just test that. But, you know, like with somebody who's like a paraplegic, they're, they're still in wheelchairs. They're still moving around the world. But someone who's blind and has been blind from birth, it seems like that's something you could test. Like is there are there certain concepts that are harder to understand if you're blind that have nothing to do literally with whether you can see something or not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, uh, it turns, it turns out that there is at least some literature looking at people with, for instance, spinal cord injuries and whether or not their cognition changed as, as you would expect, I think people really took this and started running. So maybe we'll do a follow-up episode <laughs> where we actually have the answer to whether or not this uh, approach uh, bore fruit. See, I'm using metaphors again. Bore fruit. Bore yeah, fruit. like everything. Like <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is the best thing about this. Uh, <laughs> it really is. Is that you realize even in trying to talk about it, and yeah. he has this fun like thing in the paper where he's like, there's certain papers that are uh, wars and there's certain papers that are guided tours. This is a guided tour paper. Yeah, totally. That's yeah. what I was going to ask you. Like, does the, um, it's always kind of bothered me that people use the argument as war metaphor so much. Um, it, it always seemed to me to be more damaging to the process of, of yeah. uh, arriving at truth. And, wouldn't we be better off trying to adopt other metaphors to, but then they sound soft. Then you just, <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that sounds like a Neville Chamberlain approach. Yeah, right. Or, next thing you know, I'm singing in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although he takes a lot of like passing shots. He definitely snipes at some, uh, and philosophy of language and stuff like that. Yeah. But really he's just, explaining the view here whereas there is a kind of paper where i i'm defending this view the enemy view the opposing view is that view and i'm leveling these objections like cannonballs at them and you know they have these fortifications i mean it does it's true that is how a lot of arguments work you know you go back to plato that's how a lot of the arguments yeah. uh, in plato are are put forth and it just seems like that's what we do you know yeah uh, a lot of the time we can do it in a nicer way or a bitchier way but like it is kind of the way we try to convince people and even just the word defend your argument <laughs> is, <laughs> is warlike right <laughs> i mean again you know i didn't even say that thinking of yeah right now i'm just going to spend the rest of my evening trying to think of uh different metaphors to use for whatever I'm talking about. Um, well, 
Yeah. Should we take a case study? Like if you were trying to explain the trajectory, but even saying that word trajectory, but like the trajectory of our podcast to somebody just, or, or just to use a more neutral word, the history of our podcast, like our experience over these 10 years, like how could you do that without using the like journey metaphor? It's and in- our podcast is the vehicle. Well, so one of the things that, that, um, I started thinking about when with with that whole life as a journey metaphor and just time in general is that um, you would think that time is as grounded a concept as space. Mm-hmm. At least Kant would have us believe so. <laughs> um, yeah. And that and so that you could just talk directly about uh, time. But I think what it reveals is that that even though we experience time. It is such a more abstract thing. It 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 really does. There is a lot of variability in the experience of time. Like as we get older, time mm-hmm. seems to move faster. Um, it speeds by. Uh, that flew by. Yeah, yeah. And or when you know you're like when you're a kid, summers feel like they took so so long. Like yeah. there is something about time that's not. We cannot directly experience time. And so we cannot directly describe it. So anything that involves time, it turns out, requires something like a spatial metaphor. And that, like, honestly, it was like, well, shit, that seems like a deep insight. <laughs> yeah, that's kind time. of mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, we cannot talk about time without using spatial metaphors, yeah. right? Like, right. you know, and I think, like, you know, this happens more or less with all his examples. You know, like, he talk, he, he makes a fuss about causation and, and that he's going to do something with cause like he yeah. does with time. But, like, I don't totally see it like I do with the time thing, which just seems totally right. It's true that sort of a paradigmatic cause is one object pushing another object. Like, that doesn't seem yeah. that mind-blowing. It's paradigmatic, but it's not impossible to think of it yeah, without one object putting another. Like, yeah. it is kind of impossible to even, like, what would it look like if I talked about time without using a spatial metaphor yeah. or a spatial language? Yeah. You know? But but still, like there's, you know, and maybe, you know, in a different paper, you do do that with cause. And certainly, like, I've heard him heard him on a podcast talk about, like, we, we think of causation in, like, Newtonian terms. This is what made me think this was kind of Kantian. But, you know, like, this is why we can't solve climate change. Because climate change is a system. And it's, uh, uh, yeah, and it's not a, you know, just billiard balls. And so we just have a harder, it doesn't land for us, uh, in the same way. Like we, like we don't believe it's real. That seems, that seems, uh, true of just like the more complex we get with science, like, and just more generally as a point, uh, metaphors enable us to think about all sorts of abstract stuff that we couldn't have before, but at some point they do start constraining us. And so, um, because we don't have the proper source domain to map onto a target domain of like quantum mechanics and causality in that way. Like there's just, it's hard in for a lay thinker to even conceive of, of what's going on there. And so we, we, as the world gets more complex, as we learn more and more complex things, these metaphors will I think stop being so helpful to us. And that's why I always, and there are impediments actually. There are impediments, right? So um, 
I don't know how many times I've read about like uh, the Big Bang and you try to explain what's going on and people uh, use like a balloon. They say, imagine that there's a balloon and you draw some little dots on it and then you inflate the balloon right. and the dots expand. But that's that metaphor is like, well, the balloon's expanding into something. Like I don't have any scaffolding yeah. to tell me what the universe right. is expanding into. Um, Same with like space time is curved. Exactly. You know? Like yeah. it's like, okay, but what does that mean? Really? Right. Right. You know, the, the only way to understand that as far as I can tell is by knowing the math. And even then you're understanding it a real, really non-experiential way. Um, it's hard to have any intuitions about that stuff. But then here's my question about this. Like, how did we even get to the point where we could notice that the world worked in ways that <laughs> yeah. um, we can't conceptualize because the metaphorical structure of our brains is such that it doesn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, how, how did uh, how, how did that happen? I'm sure he has a story about this, but I would like to know what it is. I don't know. I don't know that he does, but that's that's what always you joke about my rationalism a lot, but like I'm always blown away by the fact that we are able to abstract to like pure concepts like number and find out relationships between those numbers and have that predict the motion of like galaxies moving away from it. Like that shit blows my mind. It's not that I don't believe that we're not fundamentally um, constrained by our bodies and our brains and our experiences. It's just weird that, that there is something in our experience that has allowed us to pop into a level of abstraction that's so abstract that it can help us understand all kinds of other domains in a way that nothing else can. But like just right. the concept of numbers kind of unlocked this. But also it's it seems this is a like a philosophy of science kind of point. It also seems like maybe we should be suspicious that we really have done that, you know? Like, um, that maybe what we think we know is still influenced by metaphors that aren't as obviously transparent to us as the ones, well, not obviously transparent since I didn't know them until like a couple (laughs) days ago, (laughs) but like, uh, you know, easy to convince like that, that are, that are at the bottom of our, uh, how we process experience and phenomenon. Like, why would we think that we can go above that you know this is part of the pragmatist point like, yeah that you can't yeah i i'm somewhere i'm landing somewhere in between like the where i think actually m- more than before i i believe that these constraints are something that is holding us back in in such a way that like even when we're getting to like the abstract suppose that as i believe um mathematics and logic do allow us to uncover truths about the way the universe works in some way. That's mm-hmm. to me like be mind blowing. It, it is mind blowing, but it's still the case that when we're thinking about those things, um, we cannot help but apply some sort of metaphor to understanding what's going on. Like there's like, even if you have a mathematical description of a system, I don't even think the the brainiest of scientists working on that isn't possibly using a metaphor that's misguiding the whole endeavor. Right. And and what those metaphors are might determine how they're thinking about the problem in a way that leads them to a terrible mistake. And yes, and then so but where you would pull back from is you wouldn't say that's just inevitable and we can't 
transcend that. You think like we will, through the slow process of science, realize that we were misguided and then, you know, progress and maybe we won't get the final solution to use a phrase that you love. Uh, but we will, you know, like we'll get ever, ever closer. And I guess, yeah, I mean, like it, it's stuff like this that makes you at least skeptical about that kind of progress model way of thinking, you know, which is itself influenced by a kind of spatial metaphor, actually. Yeah. So like, I think that there are very key people and moments where we can push through and get some insight. So like that Einstein could, could completely destroy all intuitions and show something about the world (laughs) was, is like incredible. Like, yeah. I say we can do it. I can't do it. He could do it. And then uh, that Einstein was so resistant to some of the quantum effects um, because they didn't mesh with his intuitions, which I think, again, are metaphorically probably grounded, um, shows that he probably didn't progress as far as he could have had he been able to sort of abandon these. And so like, it's not that I am such an optimist. It's just more that, that the fact that we every once in a while can push through and learn something that we can't, that we don't even have the tools to think about at like a basic level um, right. is astounding to me. Like a Schrodinger's um, cat thing. Yeah. The, the problem is, is then we think, okay, well, how do we explain this? And we'll come up with like the many universes theory. And it's just like, is that like, like it makes sense that we would try to do that, <laughs> right. that we would try to kind of come up with that as a way of making sense with what we take the data and evidence to be. But like, do we really think that that's what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Or like, what does it even mean when we say that? Like, I am just literally, to to go back to Marvel Universe, uh, I'm literally just (laughs) porting over some CGI that I've seen of them showing like a bunch of different planets. (laughs) (laughs) Like, is that what I mean when I'm talking about many universes? (laughs) But also, you can't say I'm literally doing that as if that is... A distinction between <laughs> metaphorically doing that because we've done away. That's, right. that's, that's canceled. It's right. canceled. <laughs> so, okay, here's the thing. And I, I have to say, I owe a lot of my understanding of this paper, although, like, I think it's a perfectly well written paper and it's a little kind of all over the place yeah. guided tour, but um, all <laughs> it's over a the guided place. tour by a slightly drunk tour guide. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In this, and and it's a very, uh, it maps onto the paper very well. They talk about an inheritance hierarchy. um, And it says, like, the event structure metaphor is the bottom level, right? And then the level two is a purposeful life is a journey. And level three is love is a journey or a career is a journey or something like that. So each of these things are, you know, like... Like they're this nested. Is, yeah. It's nested, exactly. Yeah. You know, you go from something like event structure, which is very abstract, right? Yeah. That's what you said. Like states are locations, changes are movements, causes are forces, actions are self-propelled movements. So like this could apply to so many different kinds of things. So that's a very abstract thing. And now we're going to apply it to something still pretty broad, like just a life. All right. Well, we have goals. We have destinations. Even just that word, right? Destinations. And this is going to be a special case of the broader event structure thing. And then within the life, a purposeful life is a journey metaphor comes something like 
our podcast relationship and right. the podcast itself is a journey or a love relationship is a journey and they will have the same structure, you know, as, um, but they'll just be a special case of the one that's higher above it. Right. That's and right. So like, yeah. You're building from the experiential base, you're building one layer of metaphors that then you can borrow that one into this right. second layer of metaphor and you can sort of build um, using the basics from that original metaphor. It's like fractal patterns. Like when you, you, you like the, the same structure is there. You keep, when you move from the broadest to the, to the smallest, we're still using the same. My day today has been, uh, the, quite the journey. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, I am. And what you don't mean by that is like that you've gone a lot of places. <laughs> Even saying like, this is such a good example of the time thing that you were saying earlier. Oh man, it's been a long day. Yeah. It's the same. It's not it's like <laughs> right. The, the, the number of hours is the same. Right. I know. It's weird. I know this is du- like there are people who are listening to this who have thought about this probably a lot more, but it is as if the scales fell from my eyes and I started seeing <laughs> started seeing that. No, it's actually not a long. It's not long, literally. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's actually shorter because we're before December 21st. Like, we're between September, you know, if you really want to talk about like the length of it. And even just, yeah. It's amazing that, you know, I wonder, and again, I'm sure uh, there's been research on this, but you think about teaching your child um, language and concepts. You don't really have to think about teaching them any of this metaphorical stuff. Like, that'll just come. But they're learning it. They're not just learning the words the day is long like they're learning that whole conceptual schema and they're going to apply it independently to other things that happen to them and that's all just pure tacit communication like weirdly like they share our experience and they share the way we talk but that stuff is just happening because it's so deeply yeah. rooted in us like that we don't even yeah know it like it, it, in some ways it's like the scales fall from our eyes but like the reason why it's so uh, it, it feels like this kind of epiphany is that we do it so often that yeah. we don't even think. When you talk about metaphors, if you talk about it in a class, if you talk about it like when reading a text or something like that, you talk about it in this way that it got across this idea that, you know, we wouldn't have fully understood without such a good metaphor. And honestly, yeah. like I'm very proud of myself if I come up with a good, funny metaphor for something, you know, right. else. And I feel yeah. like, oh, that punctuated whatever point I'm trying to make. But what this points out is that you all that's true and you can do all that stuff, but it, it's metaphors all the way down, you know, like <laughs> yeah, it's totally. just even when you, the thing that you're thinking you're coming up with a good metaphor for is itself metaphorical. Yeah. Yeah. And again, not be, not by just defining everything as metaphor, because there still is a distinction between non metaphor mm-hmm. and metaphor. It's just far, far more dependent on it than. Uh, yeah. The, like, uh, he'll go places in life is like <laughs> you wouldn't think of that as a metaphor. No. Yeah. No. Yeah, but it's not literally. <laughs> like if he didn't literally travel to a different destination, <laughs> right. like he could still go places. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's uh, this is cool stuff, actually. You know, like I think linguistics is not my field at all, and it seems like rich terrain. You know, you know yeah. that a lot of stuff doesn't. 
it does to me until I go to a linguistics talk and then I realize I have no <laughs> right. idea what he's talking about. <laughs> uh, well, right. well, as I told you, are we yeah. at a crossroads or are we uh, at the finish line for this <laughs> episode? The, I think we're at the journey's end, but that doesn't mean we're going to die. This is nested five levels. We're not dying yet. <laughs> Nobody's dying. Uh, so can, can I just raise one other question? Yeah. When I heard him talking about politics, uh, which is the one interview that I listened to with him, it seemed naive and very oversimplified and like the, the talk of somebody who was very excited by it, an incredibly cool theory, um, but was trying to apply it in a domain where it wasn't going to work as smoothly as he thought it could work, even if he was right to criticize the way it's the status quo. Right. Um, yeah. Can you use a theory like this to actually bring about change, you know, like real practical change? Or are we always going to stumble over the fact that we're, you know, embedded in the thing that we're trying to transcend so that we can use it properly? I'm, you know, so two things. One, uh, to what you said earlier about his optimism and his almost naivete. Um, I had the pleasure of interacting with him um, at some point in the uh, early 2000s, maybe 2010, something like that, at a conference on politics. And I knew who he was and, and like, respected the, like, I knew about his book on metaphor from college. And I found him to be pretty naive, too, but especially when it came to the the brain science like this is when he was yeah, hardcore yeah. into embodied embodied cognition he was thinking that this theory was like vindicated by neuroscience and yeah. and then also weirdly that it had all this explanatory power that was like to me it was already it was already a big enough theory right. it didn't need to like, all of a sudden explain everything and that the more we understood the brain the more we could like pass like universal health insurance <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, really, that's the kind you know, of stuff he, yeah. he was saying. Yeah, he, he got to that point, and so I, I was a little like saddened by that. Um, and so I don't think, like, I don't think, at least in the way that he was understanding it, like his link was, well, the brain is basically a physical process that gives us senses, and that the, those senses are what grounds our cognition. So understanding the brain is going to help us understand how these metaphors work. And, and then, like the connections that and, we're making, like he thinks like you can't try to make a connection where like they're, you know, the different parts of the brain can't communicate with each other or something like yeah, that. You know? right. Yeah, right. Yeah. He was, There's he was none getting, of that in this paper. No, no, because it's before all that shit. Yeah. Um, so to the extent that his optimism uh, was grounded in an unrealistic view of the power of, of this the explanatory power of this theory and the predictive power, I think no, but I, I got to believe deep down that the way we talk about these things does matter. And that, um, and that the way that we frame, uh, conversations of importance, I, we've probably even experienced it with our significant others when you just take a moment and reframe something, um, yeah. Yeah. in a more positive way, it, you almost feel physically relieved that you have this other way of thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. And like you understand it better. Um, and, or if I'll like that, that happens all the time where we're having some argument and then I figure out a way of expressing my thought through this metaphor, you know, or vice versa. Like I, I get yeah. what you're saying now. And again, like there was no other way to say that there was no literal way of conveying that information. So like right. given that that kind of stuff happens all the time, 
it seems like if you were some kind of political, not even mastermind, but just competent political agent, you could uh, understand these structures and these hierarchies and the way that people filter uh, everything that we tell them through these uh, structures that you could employ that knowledge in a way that would help people understand or help uh, persuade them that your view is right. And, but I don't, but I feels like we would fuck that up more than we would <laughs> yeah, use maybe. that properly. I feel like somebody skilled in the art of rhetoric is doing this um, as second nature. Yeah. Unconsciously and, and yeah. advertisements. And exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and, even like a skilled communicator in relationships, yep. just like there's that there is, I don't know. I was talking to my daughter about her college experience and I was in a, this was like a feel good moment for me as a father because I, she was be, feeling very anxious and I tried to reframe the experiences that she was going through, which involves a lot of anxiety. And I did, I guess, use a little bit of the, of um, psychology that I knew about thinking of things as challenges instead of threats. But, I could tell just that the words actually gave her a new way of thinking about it. And that is the power of this stuff. Like whether or not we can do it systematically and scientifically, I don't, I don't know, but the words do have power over us in a, in yeah. a deep way. Yeah. Like you say, we do it unconsciously all the time because there's, yeah. we can't not do it. Yeah. The only real question is whether you could take what you've learned from this paper and from this research and use it to <laughs> like, act, you know, really employ that. To, uh, oh, no, I'm not going to try to uh, make my daughter feel more relaxed and confident this way. I'm going to do it that way because like that employs this metaphor that will resonate better, you know? Yeah. And maybe having like a better un uh, awareness of what follows from any particular metaphor, like the unintended the, mm -hmm. the unintended aspects of that metaphor that you might right. be communicating. Right. And it's uh, like, okay, you're riding on a cliff. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really twisty, turny. There are no guardrails, but you're like, you're a good driver. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Don't worry. We packed a parachute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, well, this was fun. I'm glad we talked about this. This wasn't on my radar really before yeah. the Patreon thing. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad the uh what's a good metaphor for our Patreon supporters coming through for us. They've uh they are they're the nurturing they're the nurturing parents. Nurturing they're parents. <laughs> Did you see that uh, you know, when we were had our little tiff on Twitter today, everyone said, as they sometimes do, mom and dad are fighting. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Did we ever settle who's the mom and who's the dad? No, no, I, I don't mind. You can uh, be the strict father. <laughs> I'm, I'm gender fluid. I'll be the like hot, nurturing, like MILF mother. <laughs> I'll be the wire mother. <laughs> <laughs> All right, join us next time on Very Bad Wizard. Anybody can have a